Republican Senator John Kennedy of Los, A of Los Angeles, of Louisiana, has lost his mind. Do you know who Republican Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana is? He, his name is John Kennedy, and he reminds me of President John Kennedy on November 23rd, 1963. That's who John Kennedy reminds me of. Senator John Kennedy reminds me of President Kennedy on November 23rd, 1963, because Senator John Kennedy has lost his mind. I mean, he's always been a lunatic, but on Tuesday, he outdid himself. To prove a point about decadence in our public schools, he began reading excerpts from two books, two homoerotic books that he claims are in our school libraries. He read these graphic excerpts that were so scintillating, Lindsey Graham passed out. Google it. Go to YouTube. I can't. He's, he's going to be on my show in a, a couple of minutes. We're going to talk to uh, Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana and find out what's up. This is the mop up for September 13th, 2023. On Tuesday, Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced. All right. Is that the way it's going to be? On Tuesday, Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced. Really? All right. This is how it's going to be. Let's just try this one more time. I'm having technical issues. All right. Very good. Hmm. Okay, this is uh, what you're going to do to me. Hang on for one second. Nothing's working. Hmm. Okay, well, I can't uh, play clips today. On Tuesday, Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced that he is beginning impeachment proceedings for formal impeachment proceedings for Joe Biden, but not so fast, Kevin McCarthy. According to Politico, Kevin McCarthy is going to have a hard time collecting evidence because the impeachment probe has not been authorized by a full vote of the House of Representatives, something McCarthy probably couldn't get because not all Republicans are on board the Biden impeachment train. For example, Republican Congressman Ken Buck calls all this talk about hearings, quote unquote, impeachment theater. Ken Buck, Republican, said McCarthy needs to be focused right now on putting together a budget. Our fiscal year ends at, at the end of September. And he said uh, he needs to put together a budget and keep promises he made to the Freedom Caucus, promises that he made back in January, that in exchange for their votes, for him as Speaker, he would rein in spending. Ken Buck said that McCarthy is waving impeachment in front of the Freedom Caucus as a shiny object to distract MAGA Republican lawmakers, to distract their attention away from how closely Kevin McCarthy hues to Biden's budget ideas. So 
If McCarthy goes to Congress, this is the problem that he had. He declared that there's going to be an impeachment probe, but he didn't go to Congress and ask for an authorization to begin an impeachment probe. And that's different. He knows uh, he can't win it. He all he needs to do is lose five Republican votes and there's no official impeachment probe. So he doesn't have the votes yet for an impeachment probe, so he just declared it unilaterally. A lot of Republicans feel that an impeachment probe of Biden would be political suicide. If you remember back in during the Clinton administration, the impeachment of Bill Clinton backfired on Republicans. It was very unpopular. And we're looking at 2024 and a series of state and federal court rulings this month involving redistricting maps suggests that as many as 12 seats in six states will be ordered by the courts to be redrawn, and that will favor Democrats in the 2024 elections, okay? Thanks to the court-ordered redistricting, Democrats could pick up seats in Florida, Alabama, Louisiana, and perhaps several more seats in New York State, And again, Democrats only need five seats to flip the House. Consequently, a lot of Republican House members are not keen on spending all their political capital on voting to impeach Biden, especially since he'll be acquitted in the democratically controlled Senate. Plus, the person who is pushing hardest for impeachment is Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert and a lot of establishment Republicans, what's left of them, find it obscene that they're dictating policy. So if McCarthy doesn't get a full House vote authorizing the impeachment probe, it's going to end up dead in the water. I mean, he can begin the impeachment probe, but he's not going to get any cooperation from federal agencies. That's according to new reporting in Politico. Politico reports on Tuesday that in order to conduct an impeachment probe, House Republicans will need cooperation from the Justice Department to enforce congressional subpoenas, right? Peter Navarro got convicted last week for contempt of Congress, but it was the Justice Department that had to prosecute him. So in order for Kevin McCarthy to proceed with this impeachment, he needs the Justice Department, he needs the FBI, and since they want to look at the Biden family's taxes, he needs the Internal Revenue Service. But according to Politico, Donald Trump has screwed everything up along with his attorney, Bill Barr, because back in 2020, the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel wrote a memo instructing all investigatory arms of the executive branch to refrain from assisting Congress during a Donald Trump impeachment probe unless the probe was authorized by a full vote of the House. Now, you might not remember this, but if you remember back in 2020, 2019, Nancy Pelosi was speaker. She wanted to launch an investigation into Donald Trump's perfect phone call 
to the Ukrainian president, where Donald Trump famously said to Zelensky, I know Congress allocated hundreds of millions of dollars in weapons for your war against Russia, but I need you to do me a favor first and dig up some dirt on Hunter Biden. And Nancy Pelosi wanted to act unilaterally and begin an impeachment probe. But Attorney General Bill Barr, his, he ordered his Justice Department to say not so fast before the Justice Department, the State Department, they needed the State Department to cooperate on this impeachment, and they needed the FBI. And Bill Barr said, in order for you to get the cooperation of all these arms of the executive branch, uh, you need to give us a full vote from the House of Representatives to say this is officially an impeachment probe. Otherwise, we're not going to waste our time. Nancy Pelosi went to the House and she got the vote. She got the House of Representatives to approve an impeachment probe, not an impeachment, but an impeachment probe. So all these committees could start looking into Donald Trump's attempts to uh, get Zelensky to dig up dirt on Hunter Biden in exchange for the weapons that had already been authorized for Ukraine. So McCarthy can't get this. He can't get an official authorization of an impeachment probe. And that is the official policy of the Justice Department. The official policy of the Justice Department, thanks to Bill Barr trying to protect Donald Trump, the official policy is unless you get a full vote from the entire House of Representatives authorizing the impeachment probe, you're not going to get any cooperation from the FBI, the IRS, the State Department. And that's the official policy, and it hasn't changed since Merrick Garland, Democrat, moved into Bill Barr's office. And that means the impeachment probes that McCarthy said on Tuesday said that would be taking place inside the House Judiciary, House Oversight and House Ways and Means Committees. Well, they'll be done if they're going to do them without any assistance from the FBI the IRS or Justice Department. So those probes will be meaningless. Unless, of course, Merrick Garland orders the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department to tear up that memo. But why would he? And I was going to talk to John Kennedy. No, nope, not working. Worked on that all day. It was going to be f fun. It's uh, okay. Let me go over. Okay. Uh, a new Reuters poll shows Biden's approval rating ticked up two percentage points in August and now stands at 42 percent. That's the highest it's been since March of this year. For two years, Biden's approval rating has remained below 50 percent, or as they call that, underwater. And uh, 10 years ago, it was considered impossible for a president to get reelected with numbers that are underwater, approval ratings that are below 50 percent. But things have changed dramatically in the past 10 years. More and more Americans 
expressed disgust for practically everyone in politics. So it's not unusual these days for a president to have an approval rating below 50 percent. New census data shows that America's poor, especially America's poor children, are worse off today than they were at the height of the COVID pandemic. That's because most of the relief provided in Joe Biden's $2 trillion American Rescue Plan that was passed in March of 2021, all that relief has expired. Back in 2021, when the American Rescue Plan kicked in, there was a temporary $300 a month earned income tax credit for kids. And childhood poverty immediately fell to 5.2%. It lifted millions of children up into the middle class. But Republicans refused to renew the earned income tax credit for children. And so childhood poverty by the end of 2022 has spiked to 12.4%. It went from 5.2% up to 12.4%. It more than doubled, thanks to Republicans. Meanwhile, last month, nearly 4 million Americans found themselves unable to apply for Medicaid, thanks to individual states, especially red states, creating mountains of paperwork. And that kept low-income Americans from... Uh, filing for Medicaid. They kept having to go back and file again and again and again. And 4 million low-income Americans who were entitled to Medicaid just gave up. They couldn't take the bureaucracy. That was put in place on purpose to save money. It is now expected that a year from now, 15 million Americans, possibly more, will lose their Medicaid thanks to the disappearance of all those COVID-era supplementals. To put it another way, the first two years of the Biden administration ushered in the largest expansion of the social safety net since Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, only to see most of it erased in the second half of his first term. That is not Joe Biden's fault. That is the fault of Republicans, as well as Democratic senators like Kirsten Sinema, who is no longer a Democrat, and Joe Manchin, who is no longer a human being. See, I would give anything to blame Biden for this and, and start saying, I told you we, we should have elected Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, but this is not Joe Biden's fault. It just isn't. There's a famous story of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, about Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He was meeting with civil rights activists, and FDR essentially said, make me do it. Make me do it. Turns out he probably never said that, but the mythology remains, and it's a good one. It's a good myth. Roosevelt, as the story goes, said, I agree with everything you're saying, but you must go out there and make me do it. The Civil Rights Acts of 64 and 65 passed because, to put it simply, Dr. Martin Luther King, as well as others, made Lyndon Johnson do it. Now, Dr. King had a direct line to Lyndon Johnson. They talked all the time. Plus, the FBI was listening in 
on uh, all of Martin Luther King's phone calls. So LBJ knew what Dr. King was thinking. But Dr. King knew there was nothing he could say to Johnson to convince him to get the Civil Rights Acts of 64 and 65 going. He knew he had to go out, take to the streets, and make Johnson do it. So I don't know what's going on in this country. Uh, I know America leans further to the left than what our electoral politics suggest. A majority of Americans, for example, want Medicare for all. And I know that the Black Lives Matter protests back in 2020 brought out a level of civic engagement not seen since the 1960s, despite all the lies spewed by Republicans and Fox News, lies about Black Lives Matter. It has changed. Black Lives Matter changed the way we police and prosecute Clearly not enough, especially when you look at what's going on over at Rikers Island here in Manhattan or Fulton County Jail down in Georgia. I mean, it's gotten worse at Fulton County Jail and it's gotten worse at Rikers. But thanks to Black Lives Matter, we're paying attention and that's a good thing. And we've elected a lot more prosecutors of color since 2020 and their first instinct isn't to lock up uh, nonviolent offenders. So things are changing, at least in the cities. Black Lives Matter worked, but I don't see the protests anymore. Are they protesting the way they did back in 2020? It feels like we're sliding backwards. It feels like that. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm pissed off that my technology isn't working this morning. But uh, it feels like Democrats and the left are sliding backwards. Instead of Bobby Kennedy, we get Bobby Kennedy Jr. Maybe I'm missing something, and maybe this is how I feel right now. But I I feel despondent this week, and, and maybe I'm projecting my despondency onto the rest of the left. I don't know. But it does feel like we're not doing enough. Now, Biden, and again, I'm probably wrong, but personally, I feel he kind of knocked the wind out of the progressive movement for a while. Uh, I hope I'm wrong, and I hope this is just me hot and bothered. It seems to me, at least this morning, that in his first two years in office, he accomplished definitely accomplished a record that he can run on. But he paid lip service to Bernie's Build Back Better last year, which would have reset our entire economy. It would have provided universal preschool, universal daycare, free tuition at all community college. It would have raised the minimum wage. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And instead, Biden and the Democrats gutted Bernie's Build Back Better And we ended up with the Inflation Reduction Act, which is something, Uh, you know, Inflation Reduction Act, pretty good. But it left me feeling a little broken. Uh, I felt Biden didn't push hard enough for Bernie's Build Back Better. But I don't know if the political will was there. 
I don't know. There was a part of me that felt that Joe Biden paid lip service to Build Back Better because Bernie endorsed him in 2020. It was a promise that they made, an agreement that they made for that endorsement. So I feel that Biden took Build Back Better as far as he could, knowing in the end he always had Joe Manchin to destroy it. I felt a little played by the establishment Democrats. That being said, the Inflation Reduction Act, it's no build back better, but it's something, but not enough. It's supposed to lower prescription medicine for Medicare, but now Big Pharma is challenging that in the courts. It earmarked nearly $200 billion on beefing up the Internal Revenue Service, uh, making sure the rich pay their fair share. And we're beginning to see a little of that. Uh, and of course, there are all these investments in clean energy. And perhaps those investments in clean energy might serve as a Trojan horse that when we look back 10 years from now, if we're still around, economists will say that the Inflation Reduction Act is what destroyed the fossil fuel industry. Possibly. I, I'm still optimistic. Uh, I doubt it. I do know that Obama's 2009 fiscal stimulus bill uh, was insufficient. But I also know it's the reason solar power is so cheap right now. Solar power took off because Obama's 2009 fiscal stimulus bill invested in solar energy. It was sneaky. He kind of snuck these solar power uh, subsidies into this gigantic spending bill. Maybe that's how you do it. But there's no question that without the 2009 fiscal stimulus bill, solar power would not be we wouldn't be scaling it. And China wouldn't be scaling it uh, the way we are. Uh, so, uh, you know, I can sit here as I often do, and say we need to declare war on the oil companies. We have to. But Biden and Bernie would tell, I, eh, yeah, Bernie, maybe, I don't know what Bernie would tell me, but I, I suspect, I don't think Bernie would tell, tell me to go small uh, and say do things quietly. Uh, but there is a school of thought to sneak Trojan horses into bills so that the opposition doesn't know what's in there and they don't know how to stop you. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I do know it's much easier to be a Republican. All you must work towards is stopping the federal government from doing anything. That's easy. It's easy to destroy things. But Democrats, for better or worse, are trying to build a green and just society. And that's almost impossible, given who we're up against, not just from the outside, but from within. So where are we? I don't know. I feel lost. I really do. Uh, it feels like we're in a holding pattern until 2024. We have divided government. The House is now controlled by Republicans. This is gridlock. Divided government means all Biden 
can do is issue executive orders that are too often overturned by a Supreme Court, handpicked by Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump. Nobody seems to be challenging Biden on the left. I mean, we have Dr. West, Dr. Cornell West, and that's good. There's Bernie, but Bernie has acquiesced. The squad seems to have acquiesced. The feeling, at least this is what I'm picking up, the feeling seems to be that Trump and the Republicans are an an existential threat to our republic and that all that matters is defeating Trump and the Republicans. So the left, it feels, is in a holding pattern until after 2024. It sure feels like that to me. I'd be curious to know what you think. Leave a comment. I, it just feels like the left has stopped fighting for things. It's like we've got Biden and this is the best we can do. Let's play hacky sack. I mean, you look at the right. They never quit fighting, especially with each other. The more they try to destroy the Republican Party from the inside, the stronger it seems to get. Matt Gates, the odious congressman from Florida, gave a speech Tuesday on the floor of the House warning Speaker McCarthy that this impeachment investigation, which Matt Gates wants, he says it's not enough. It's not going fast enough. He wants to know why Hunter Biden hasn't been subpoenaed already. And he began to attack the speaker for his willingness to pass a continuing resolution to keep the government open past October 1st. Gates, he wants the government shut down. He wants, he claims to rein in spending. Gates accused McCarthy of not keeping his end of the bargain that McCarthy made to get the votes to be speaker back in January. And Matt Gates says that he himself is just days away from making a motion to vacate the chair. And that means the House has to vote again on a new speaker. So, of course, all the Beltway talks about is McCarthy's chances of survival as opposed to our planet's. Seems like we should be talking more about our survival and not Kevin McCarthy's. Republicans are constantly fighting. The Freedom Caucus rarely compromises. They rarely get in line. We have nothing like that in the Democratic Party. The Progressive Caucus does whatever Hakeem Jeffries tells them to do. You know, it would be nice to have some hungry progressives in the House of Representatives They say a military marches on their belly. You got to feed your soldiers first. Maybe the left, the progressives inside the Democratic Party, maybe they're a little too well fed these days. Maybe we need members of Congress who are up to their eyeballs in debt and are hungry and know what it's like to need a $15 minimum wage. It feels as the summer comes to an end that it's easy now to stop fighting, to stop asking for things from Biden, to stop expecting things from the Democrats, 
to lay low, to be patient and do what progressives in the Democratic Party since Clinton have been told to do. Wait, wait, wait. We, we need we need to defeat the fascists first. It's always something. Wait, wait. We're going to lose a year. We're, the election isn't it's more than a year away. And it feels, and maybe my, maybe I'm dis, my perspective is distorted, but it feels to me like the progressives are just waiting a year, hoping the Democrats win back the House and Biden gets reelected. Once again, we're being told, wait until we defeat the fascists. And there's no question that the Republicans are fascists. But as the great professor Harvey J.K. has pointed out countless times on this show, Roosevelt defeated the fascist, but he also had time to introduce an economic bill of rights. Granted, it never got passed, but he didn't expect unions and the working people back home during the war to surrender all their New Deal gains to postpone things until we defeated Hitler. He knew that you could defeat fascists by creating an atmosphere back home where Americans are less susceptible to the charms of authoritarianism. I don't know if that's happening here in the United States. My perspective is a little distorted this morning. And I can't pretend... The Republicans don't scare me. Uh, the Republicans scare me, but it's the American people who really, really scare me. I am worried that we have been so dumbed down and beaten, we lack the vocabulary to, to protect ourselves or to even know what we need to protect ourselves from. I look at the Republican Party, I see Trump running even with Joe Biden in the polls. How is such a thing possible? I read what people on the other side of the aisle truly believe to be true. And I think Medicare for all, income inequality, gun safety, climate change. Are you kidding me? Do you honestly think we can tackle any of this? What? with what's staring at us across the aisle. It, it just seems today insurmountable. I've always believed as a class reductionist that most of these social issues like abortion, bigotry against people of color, the LGBTQ community, women, uh, bigotry against people who aren't Christian, I always believe that all that bigotry and that hate would lift if we gave everyone a, a fair shake, Medicare for all. You know, if we broke up the big monopolies, created better jobs, more competition, free tuition at all public universities, made it easier to unionize. Now, all the things that were in Bernie's Build Back Better, I, I believe that as the tide lifts all boats, a lot of the hatred would dissipate. And I believe that America's failure to provide a social safety net like that, that 
the failure to create strong unions, uh, for example, has given birth to the politics of resentment and rage that came to fruition during the Reagan administration. I mean, it really, that's when we saw it uh, really come together and materialize, the, the politics of resentment and rage. It's always been there. Reagan used it like nobody has before. But now I'm worried that we're past the politics of resentment and rage. I think it I think it worked up until 2016, and Trump and the MAGA Republicans, with or without Trump, you know, Ron DeSantis, for example, there's now something else going on. Uh, there's a growing segment of our population, Republicans, that doesn't care about Social Security, Medicare, climate change, better schools. They don't care about anyone or anything. And the last thing they want is someone to try to make them care. I was watching Shane Gillis on Netflix, and this is a comedian who did some rancid jokes about Asians and was about to start uh, on Saturday Night Live. And if you watch what he said about Asians, you'd go, yeah, you're not welcome on network television. But now he has the number one uh, special on Netflix. And I watched it over the weekend. And he's he's brilliant. Uh, he's absolutely brilliant. And he's not backing down from uh, playing with that kind of fire. He's toned it down a little. But what I'm picking up from comics like Shane Gillis and a lot of these comedians who are Trump supporters, they are and their audiences are sick of caring about anything or anyone. It's funny to just stop caring about things. And that just that, that attitude isn't just comedy. It bleeds into our politics it's a complete surrender to any responsibility to others. And it's this feeling, and I just see it in red states. I see it at the Trump rallies. We're all going to die. There's nothing we can do about guns or big oil or climate catastrophe. So let's laugh at the woke mob for thinking they can actually fix things. It's a fatalism that... I've never witnessed before in my lifetime. You mix this in with religion and it's apocalyptic. There is this fatalism, this nihilism that is now a political ideology, even though I don't think the Republicans are aware how fatalistic they are. It's becoming pervasive on the right, which no longer stands for anything. It's now just leave me alone. You knock on my door. I don't know who you are. I'm firing my gun. Leave me alone. It's a type of isolationism. There's always been a strain of isolationism in the Republican Party among conservatives, but that had to do with Hitler and 
foreign intervention. Now it's an isolationism of do not knock on my door or I will shoot you. Leave me alone. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to live. Leave me alone. That's what I'm saying from the right and from Republicans more and more. The right used to stand for smaller government. Now it's about destroying government, destroying the entire system. Destruction is the point. Uh, enjoying the destruction is the point. Drive the hyper-educated professionals insane by your complete and utter lack of empathy or reason. They enjoy having no reason. Tear it all down and replace it with AR-15s. And if you knock on my door, I'm going to shoot you. I see it now when they talk about January 6th. Now, everyone knows what January 6th was, the same way everyone knows what the Civil War was. January 6th was an insurrection. Donald Trump ordered Mike Pence killed. But that's too hard for some Republicans, including Mike Pence. It's too hard for some Republicans who hold elective office to admit that to themselves, especially the ones like Kevin McCarthy, people who think they're still in this game. But when you go down the, the food chain in the Republican Party and get to Republican members of Congress who aren't committee chairs, who are just rank and file Republicans, uh, who have no responsibility, they know exactly what January 6th was. And they're not just fine with it. They wish it had succeeded. Like the Southerners after the Civil War, Republicans lie to others and call January 6th something which everyone knows it wasn't. We all know what it was. And it defies reason to pretend otherwise. Everyone knows what the Civil War was. Now they go, no, that was about states' rights or preserving our way of life. Uh, no, we know what the Civil War was about. But that's part of the game that the South plays. And we see this with Republicans. They know what January 6th was. They get off on pretending it was something else. Here is Dan Bongino. I saw this last night. Oh, I can't play clips. Okay. Well, let me see. Will this play? No. Okay. I was going to play a clip of Dan Bongino. He's a former Fox News personality. He... Uh, was a Secret Service agent and a cop. And I was watching his podcast on Rumble, and he just flexes his nihilism. He knows what January 6th was. His audience knows what January 6th was. And I was going to play you a clip where you can just, you just know that Don Bongino, Dan Bongino knows January 6th was a violent insurrection, but just deny it. Have fun denying it the same way it's fun to deny that the Civil War was about slavery. Own the libs. 
by saying the Civil War was about states' rights. Own the libs by saying January 6th was just a protest that got out of hand, even though they know it was an insurrection. Uh, but they keep, they actually keep the attack on Washington, on our capital, going by denying that it was an insurrection, by trivializing it. I was going to... Uh, play you this clip, but my effing technology isn't working today. In the clip, Dan Bongino isn't trying to win any arguments. He doesn't care. He's He talks about these AIDS activists who occupied Speaker McCarthy's office. I think it was on Monday, and they staged a peaceful protest. And if you look at the video, you can see McCarthy's workers just ignoring their chants and doing their work. And it was a peaceful protest, and they were prepared to get arrested for it. Uh, no violence. It's civil disobedience, right? Uh, Thoreau talks about civil disobedience. It's an, it's an agreement we make with our government. It's protesting that is a misdemeanor. It doesn't cross a certain line. Civil disobedience is what moves the needle towards social justice. You don't end a war. You don't get civil rights without civil disobedience. Peaceful civil disobedience. And the price you pay for your civil disobedience is a night in jail. It's nonviolent civil disobedience. Far different from storming the Capitol with bear spray and zip ties and trying to hang Mike Pence, Nancy Pelosi, and committing millions and millions of dollars in damage to our Capitol. You watch this video and he immediately compares this peaceful protest to January 6th and Enrique Terrio getting 22 years. It defies reason. But he knows that. I wish I could show you this clip. He's just saying this to get a rise out of himself, to rile up his audience and any libs who are stupid enough to watch this pus-filled pimple of hate, Dan Bongino. Uh, it's part of the nihilism. It's not about being right. It's not about being reasonable. It's about destruction. It's about riling up your base and driving reasonable people insane. And my answer to watching somebody like Dan Bongino is, okay, you're a cop. You're a Secret Service agent. You believe in law and order. So do I. And we need to start locking these people up for life. Not Dan Bongino, but the people he's protecting. They are criminals. And without Merrick Garland in the Justice Department, if we end up with another Bill Barr, another Republican attorney general, we can't lock these people up. Is this going to solve climate change? Will it raise children out of poverty? No. Can we do both at the same time? Can we arrest, keep arresting these insurrectionists and fix climate change? We should be able to. But 
I no longer have faith today in the American people. I'm worried that the American people have been dumbed down so much that we cannot chew gum and walk at the same time. Franklin Delano Roosevelt could chew gum and walk at the same time, and he was confined to a wheelchair. I don't think this country, I, I've, I have lost faith in the American people this morning. This morning. I'll get my faith back once my technology starts working again. I'll have faith in the American people. I am sitting on so much rage right now because I can't play these videos. I don't know if you can see, but uh, anyway, anyway, lawyers for Rudy Giuliani filed a motion on Tuesday informing the judge in the Georgia election interference case that they will not be ready to go to trial on October 23rd when Rudy's co-defendant, Kenneth Cheesebro, mounts his defense. Meanwhile, Monday was September 11th, and I'm not making this up. Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> I'm not laughing at 9-11, okay? Uh, but Rudy stormed out of a ceremony at Ground Zero on Monday. He claimed Vice President Harris ruined 9-11 for him. He literally said on Newsmax, she ruined 9-11 for me. And if I had a clip, I, I could play that for you. Like a mobster. That's how Elon Musk describes Rudy Giuliani back in 2001, at the end of 2001, when Musk approached the former mayor of New York to serve as a political fixer for Musk's fledgling online banking company, PayPal. In a new book about Musk, written by the cowardly Walter Isaacson, Musk says he and Giuliani met a couple weeks after 9-11 when Giuliani was no longer the mayor, and Giuliani was looking to make his mark in the private sector. In the book, Musk describes Rudy's new office as, quote, a mob scene with henchmen demanding 10% of PayPal to get Rudy's legal expertise. It was kind of a, he described it as like a shakedown, like mobsters saying, we need 10% of PayPal if you want Rudy's expertise. Musk told his biographer that he decided not to hire Rudy after being left with the impression that Rudy and the, quote, goonish confidants he surrounded himself with were only concerned with lining their own pockets. Well, sometimes Elon Musk is correct, right? He got that right. Oh, I wish I could play the quote of Rudy talking about how Kamala Harris ruined 9-11 for him. He was looking forward. That's his day. You know, that's his big day, 9-11, and she ruined it for him. Tim Scott is running for president as a Republican, and he told the Washington Post on Tuesday, quote, I'm not gay. In a piece on Tuesdays uh, in the Washington Post, it was entitled Tim Scott's Girlfriend. They dedicated thousands of words in the Washington Post 
to whether or not Tim Scott actually has a girlfriend. And why is this important? Because he's running for president as a Republican. And Republican voters want to know why Tim Scott is 57 and he's not married. The Washington Post says Scott doesn't like to talk about his girlfriend, but lately he's been talking a lot about her. So far, we have yet to meet her or see her. Jennifer DeCasper is Tim Scott's close friend, as well as his campaign manager. And the Washington Post asked her about the status of Senator Tim Scott's dating life. She told the Post, quote, it's non-existent. Let me read you my favorite part of the article. It's written by Ben Terrace for the Washington Post. And it doesn't get any better than this for David Feldman. Let's see if I can go full screen this morning. This is from the Washington Post. Matt Schlapp, the head of the Conservative Political Action Conference, asked me whom I thought Trump might choose as his 2024 running mate. When I mentioned Scott, Tim Scott, Matt Schlapp replied, are you ready? This is what Matt Schlapp replied when he said to the Washington Post. Schlapp replied, you think he picks a gay vice president? That's what Matt Schlapp told the Washington Post. He, uh, Matt Schlapp, who the Washington Post points out, uh, was accused of unwanted groping by a male staffer on Herschel Walker's Senate campaign. And there are two other men who have uh, come forward and are suing. But it's always a good show. When my technology isn't working, at least it's a good show when I can go after Matt Schlapp. Ah, I had such good clips of Senator John Kennedy reading homoerotic pornography in the Senate on Tuesday. I was going to have so much fun with this. It was amazing. Let me just see. Does it? Let me just see. Maybe it'll work. Let me go full screen. Maybe it'll work. So disappointing. No. Ah, oh, so disappointing. Do me a favor and just Google Senator John Kennedy reading pornography. <laughs> reading pornography. I worked so hard cleaning it up. It was going to be good. And now my life sucks. Well, that pesky 14th Amendment. It's added again. Now, if you recall, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment forbids anyone who held elective office from ever serving again if they participated in or aided and abetted an insurrection. As you know, six voters in Colorado have sued the Democratic Secretary of State in Colorado to remove Donald Trump's name from the ballot, citing the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause. Trump's lawyers are already, they're already challenging that one, and a judge scolded his lawyers on Tuesday in Colorado, telling them they have no idea how to practice law. They filed a motion in the wrong court. And now a similar lawsuit 
has been filed in Minnesota, where the Secretary of State Steve Simon is a Democrat. And Steve Simon says he's been inundated with requests to remove Trump from the ballot where everybody cites the 14th Amendment. Like Colorado and any other state with a Democratic Secretary of State, whether Trump remains on the ballots will ultimately be decided by the Supreme Court. So any any state that has a Democratic Secretary of State, you're going to see lawsuits to scrub Donald Trump's name from the ballot because of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Meanwhile, it's starting to look like Trump has the Republican nomination locked up. According to the Real Clear Politics polling averages, Trump leads his nearest competitor, Ron DeSantis, nationally by 40 points. I mean, that's just incredible. In Iowa, Trump leads DeSantis by 31 points. DeSantis is still in second place, but he's falling. Tim Scott is in third place in Iowa. He's coming up. And in New Hampshire, Trump leads DeSantis by 31 points. Chris Christie is rising. He's coming in third. And this is mind-boggling. In a matchup with Joe Biden... Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, dead heat, dead heat. It's incredible. And I would have had a funny clip to play. Yep, not going to work. All right. I had a really funny clip to punctuate what I was saying, but I must rely on my own wit. And that's why I'm screwed. Well, to win Iowa, you need the Christian right. Never forget, Rick Santorum won Iowa in 2012. And if you don't know who Rick Santorum is, Google Santorum. Just Google the word Santorum. And it's kind of like pretty much what Senator John Kennedy was reading today or last night or yesterday in the Senate. Google the word Santorum, and you will discover that Santorum won Iowa in 2012. And Ted Cruz won in 2016 because you really need the Christian right to win in Iowa. And despite everything that's going on, Trump's support from the religious right in Iowa, as well as around the country, doesn't seem to be wavering. If anything... It's getting stronger. And I've always been baffled by the hold that Donald Trump has over the religious right. It goes without saying there is nothing Christian about a man who has never once correctly quoted the scriptures. Donald Trump is forbidden from running any charities in New York State because he was caught pocketing the contributions. That's a fact. He's not allowed to run any charities, hardly Christian, married three times, and Melania is nowhere to be seen. She's probably vacationing with Tim Scott's girlfriend. Melania is nowhere to be seen, especially 
invisible ever since a Manhattan jury back in May found Donald Trump civilly liable for raping E. Jean Carroll. He's a rapist. So what is his hold on the Christian right? I know that the evangelicals like to believe we we are all sinners, but all Trump does is sin. All he is is a sinner. I mean, we're all sinners, but all Trump is is a sinner. What has he done to earn his way into the kingdom of heaven? What has he done? Adding $8 trillion to our national debt by giving the wealthiest 1% a massive tax cut? Is that what he did? I know Jesus would have frowned upon that. And I understand you don't earn your way into the kingdom of heaven if you're an evangelical. It's not about good deeds. It's simply about taking Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And yet, unlike the Catholic Church, you just have to take Jesus into your heart and you don't have to do good deeds. So I had a clip where I was going to ask Donald Trump if he's taken Jesus into his heart. And then Donald Trump was going to say something really gross and disgusting. But my technology doesn't work today. So how hard is it for you to imagine Donald Trump saying something anti-Christian? It's harder to imagine him saying something Christian. So we're better off without that clip. Man, I'm so pissed. I worked three hours cutting up Senator John Kennedy. It was absolutely filthy, and I cleaned it up and uh, wasted three hours of my life. Professor Ryan, I'm talking about the religious right and why they seem to be enamored, enthralled by Donald Trump. By the way, he looks... He does not look healthy. I mean, he never did, but I've seen him. He's uh, not looking good. So maybe prayer does work. Keep praying. Professor Ryan Berger teaches political science at Eastern Illinois University, and he has a piece in Politico this week on the religious rights diminishing role in Republican politics. Professor Berger says that while Trump still has overwhelming support from what's left of the religious right, he's also incredibly popular among the growing number of Republicans who identify as religious but never attend church. It's kind of interesting. Uh, Trump, he says, heading into 2024, Trump won't be as dependent on the evangelical Christian right as he was back in 2020 or even more so back in 2016. He's saying that the evangelical right has less and less power within the Republican Party as their numbers get smaller. He writes that in 2008, when McCain, Republican, ran against Obama, Democrat, 44% of all Republicans said they went to church at least once a week. By 2022, that number had dipped to 35%. He 
He concludes that the stranglehold the religious right has had on the GOP since the Reagan years has significantly eroded. I'm going to guess it peaked during the George W. Bush administration. Either way, it bodes well for Trump as we head into primary season. Trump doesn't need the deeply religious, and uh, he needs right now the kind of, sort of, religious. That's the growing segment in the Republican Party, people who identify as religious, but they don't go to church. But still, why is he overwhelmingly popular with the deeply religious as well as the sort of, kind of, religious? doesn't make any sense to me. One would think these four criminal trials, one involving hush money to a porn star, would make him appear less Christian in both deed and character to God-fearing Republicans. But no, they, they love him more. I always thought that the deeply religious would find a way to take a second look at someone like Mike Pence. But no, Trump is keeping the deeply religious There's no question, perhaps this is the reason, there's no question that he delivered the Supreme Court to them. And as a result, the seemingly impossible was achieved. The reversal of Roe v. Wade last year. And you can't overestimate the gratitude that the Christian right feels for Trump getting those three Supreme Court justices picked. Uh that maybe that is what has sealed the Christian right's allegiance to him, and they don't care how he conducts his personal life. And holding on to the not-so-religious, well, that seems less of a hurdle, I guess. He's definitely, everyone knows he's a mean-spirited, lascivious liar, but apparently that's less and less of a liability among Republicans who no longer take the teachings of Jesus so literally. You know, they they don't see the contradiction. By the way, while 35% of Republicans attend church at least once a week, only 18% of Democrats attend church at least once a week. That's nearly half as many in the Democratic Party. As for Trump... Attending church when he was president, he rarely, if ever, attended church. He announced he was no longer Presbyterian, defined himself as non-denominational, and said he had leanings towards the evangelical church. He said he has never once asked God for forgiveness, which is one of the core tenets of Christianity. I mean, he just openly says, I don't ask God for forgiveness. But you know who's religious? Joe Biden. He doesn't wear it on his sleeves, but you do see him going to church. He's Catholic. And while the Pope would never endorse him, the Pope has attacked reactionary Republican Catholics here in the United States. Two weeks ago, he said that Reactionary Republican conservative Catholics 
have lost sight of the true mission of the Catholic Church. He's, the Pope has spoken out against Catholics who deny climate change and put money before faith. So the religion thing, we've got a year before the general election. I don't think too many religious members of the religious right who are voting for Trump are going to take a second look at Joe Biden. But uh, maybe some will, or they'll stay home. Maybe the religious right will just stay home on Election Day, which is kind of like voting for Biden. Here's the bottom line. Uh, we need to be addressing Medicare for all, climate change, abortion, the rights of the LGBTQ community, guns, but it doesn't feel like we're going to be talking about any of this in the next year. It feels like things are going to get really nasty. That's how it feels to me today, because Donald Trump is fighting for his life. He's got to win because the odds are that out of four criminal trials, he's going to lose at least one. And Jack Smith, the special counsel, isn't done yet with these grand juries. There are still the possibility, there's still the possibility of a fifth set of criminal indictments getting handed down for wire fraud. And maybe a sixth and seventh set of indictments. Uh, we need to fix the planet, but nothing's going to get done between now and Election Day 2024. Biden can sign some, uh, you know, some executive orders. Supreme Court's up to the Supreme Court. We're going to be squandering more than a year focusing on Trump and watching Biden's executive orders sorted out by the courts. The next year, when it comes to domestic issues, will be decided not by our president or Congress. They will be decided by our courts. We no longer have a functioning republic. Very little gets done. And so we have gridlock. The courts step in. And our side is operating at a distinct disadvantage. One of... The things that still haunts me is back in 2016, I voted for Hillary. Uh, and I know most people who listen to the show don't like Hillary. But one of the things that haunts me is we were told to think about the courts. We have to protect Roe v. Wade. And I know there are a lot of people who said, yeah, right. Like Trump, if he wins, is going to pick justices who are going to overturn Roe v. Wade. I can't stress this enough. This would now be a different country if Hillary had won, despite all her neoliberal hawkish flaws, and they are many, this would be a much different country. She would now be in her second term and she would have picked four new Supreme Court justices. Not, that's, and not to mention the, the deep bench she would have created in the district courts. But think about that. 
four of the nine justices sitting on the Supreme Court today would have been picked by Hillary Clinton. Different, different country in every way. Citizens United would have been overturned. Roe v. Wade would not have been overturned. Affirmative action would still be in place. These gun laws would be tightening, not loosening. Uh, completely different country had Hillary won. Not my first choice. I wanted Bernie. And uh, this time around, Biden is far from my first choice. I'd like to think that the Democratic Party could fight it out and somebody with more zing and zest and vim and vigor. You know, I like the governor of California, Gavin Newsom. I know he destroyed universal health care in California. We came very close to that in California two years ago, and he screwed us on that. But Gavin Newsom looks pretty good, and he's debating Ron DeSantis. He's kind of running a shadow campaign. Keep an eye on Gavin Newsom. But nobody's running against Biden. Bernie isn't running. Elizabeth Warren isn't running. Uh, we're stuck with Biden. I think Gavin Newsom is saying, just in case you need me, I'm here. But we're stuck with Biden or Trump. That seems to be what's on the menu right now. Make sure you're registered to vote. I'm a little despondent this morning. Uh, I'm not looking forward to the next 14 months. It's not going to be fun. It's, it's just not going to be... I, I'm not looking forward to it. I think it's going to get ugly. My advice is get inside the Democratic Party and make them do it and fight like hell the way the Republicans do. Make your party do it the same way Roosevelt said, make me do it. Get in there and fight. And this is how I think you can fight between now and Election Day. And this is going to piss off a lot of my listeners. Get involved in the Democratic Party and rip these neoliberal shitheads to shreds. Fight them. But you don't leave. You know, it's like, I'm not leaving the Democratic Party. You're going to leave. Just, you know, you what you do is you fight it out. But come Election Day, unfortunately, you compromise and go with who gets the nomination. And uh, when Biden ends up with the nomination or Gavin Newsom, uh, you don't surrender your vote without getting promises and holding them to it. Promises that we saw with Joe Biden, promises he made to Bernie that he kind of, sort of didn't keep. But make them do it. Uh, politicians only care about money, but they need votes. So register. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. 